can I tell you how the hidden political agenda behind if you give a mouse a cookie debunks banning books for children? Yes, but I'm a little nervous here. The first half of that made me feel like I was in the wrong podcast. And then the second half, you rounded it out pretty nicely. I think that we should give a disclaimer here. Mm -hmm. Just because that was a complex sentence. In this podcast, we are pro-book and anti-ban. Yes, we like book. We don't want to remove book from children. There we go. That being said, yes, I would love to learn how a political agenda that may or may not be hidden within the classic children's book, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie, we all know her, we all love her, has, at least in your opinion, helped debunk book banning. Yes, and explicitly book banning for kids in schools, because that, that's where these books are really getting banned, is for the children. I mean, yeah, like children are the only humans you can actively ban books control. from. And I guess so, so, yeah. Like, yes, you you could send out a, a no reading list to adults, but I don't know if that's going to carry the same weight. So, yes, we are talking about children. And, Hate to go there, yeah. but but we have to because that is the class or the demographic that is largely being impacted in the United States by book banning. And we're going to do yes. so by talking about a children's book that we've all read that we can all relate to. We can ground ourselves in this book. Absolutely. So for those of you who aren't familiar with If You Give a Mouse a Cookie, the story more or less goes, if you give a mouse a cookie, then he'll ask for a glass of milk. So it's the if-then structure throughout the whole book. And there's more and more things that this, you know, human is giving this mouse and this mouse is requesting. It goes on and on, but it's it's so cute. Yes. And I remember, of course, I remember this book, but I remember part of like, he gets a little bed or a pillow or something and it just looked so cozy. Yeah, it, the, the illustrations are really beloved for this book. It, I mean, it turned into a franchise. There's a TV show with it now. So it is a very popular book. It was also released in the mid-80s. And for those of you who know American history, the mid-80s, that's the height of Ronald Reagan. That is, he just got elected for his second term. This book was, re- was released in 1985. And so at the time, there was a lot of political discourse about welfare states, about what welfare should and should not be. And it really centers around the idea that if you give someone something, then they're going to ask for something else. So it's a never ending loop of, I need help. Now I need more help. Now I need more help. And it typically in political rhetoric is used as a way to argue against social programs or any sort of safety net for people. I tend to see that specific argument used a lot with older generations, like specifically the people who would have been in their prime in the 80s, (laughs) back, back in the day, specifically with like the housing crisis and our current economic state post COVID. And for me being younger, it's always been so frustrating because I see right through that. Like it's just not, true. So I'm very curious to to learn more about this specific book. 
Yeah, so there, I remember stumbling upon a TikTok that was saying that this book was a political plant to indoctrinate children with the idea that no one should get handouts, right? And mm. that's a bit of a stretch of an interpretation. But if you misremember the book and if you really think about the if-then structure of it all, it tends to make sense. And this theory was really popularized by a Washington Post article back in 2015. And in the article, because I, I was trying to, at first I was approaching this podcast with like, if you give a mouse a cookie has an agenda or it had some sort of political tie-in. And I was trying to find the sources that I remember seeing in this, you know, one-off video. But when I really actually went into the sources, they never quoted the author. They were quoting conservative think tanks and a loosely applying ideology to a children's book. And then they ended it all with this grand thesis that if you give a mouse a cookie is about welfare states and it's about uh, getting rid of social programs. Now, a good number of years. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. I it's it's just now kind of digesting in my brain and that's just ridiculous. When you said Washington Post, it's already a red flag for me. The Washington Post, I think is a very very problematic paper because it's very far right in my opinion. It comes on right neutral on the little maps. But in the recent years, they've positioned themselves really well on social media. And so they have this persona that I think tricks a lot of people. And so, you know, we always plug know your media, know your news on this show. And this is another reason to do so. Like you shouldn't trust a large publication just because you know their name and they make funny videos online. A lot of them are making really problematic claims like this one. Yes. In my opinion and my memory of this children's book, I never thought about it again a day in my life. I always thought it was just a little cute mouse who had a cookie and made a little bed. For me, that was it. Yes. And I'm, I'm curious for people out there if they have a similar memory with the book or maybe this has been a book that stayed with you and in that case I want to know that too but like this is an animal farm you know it's a children's book that can just be cute it doesn't have to be a political weapon absolutely so we have this problematic 2015 article pushing one interpretation of the book and then I, in my research, found another article that addressed that specific interpretation because I only found the one article that was saying that it had this nimbyist interpretation, this welfare state interpretation. But for for those listening, NIMBY means not, not in my, my backyard. backyard. It's an acronym, and it's generally like anti-social program sort of rhetoric. But then I found this other article in twenty that was published in twenty twenty that talks about how if you give a mouse a cookie was actually kind of caught up in a culture war of sorts. And they addressed that the Washington Post article doesn't have any quotes from the author. They didn't even reach out to the author or even address if they did reach out to the author. And so in this article, they actually reached out to the author and have quotes from the author. 
and they talk about how if you give a mouse a cookie, more or less is just a kid's book. And the author thought it was really cute and funny to think of a mouse eating a whole cookie and a human Thank giving you. it to them. And then they need a glass of milk, like animals eating human food. It's cute. Sometimes it's adorable. Sometimes stories, especially stories for children, are just that. They are just stories. And I think it is so problematic, and I know we'll get into this more in our debrief, but to take something innocent that is related to children that children can understand and morph it into a political agenda for adults, that's disgusting. Like, this is a little mouse, okay? He didn't ask for this. He's just a little guy. He's innocent. Free the mouse. So I like I very much fell for a piece of misinformation, right? I went into this research with the assumption that this book had a certain agenda, but then trying my very best to be a good researcher for this podcast and being a good informed person in general, I went into this research understanding the keywords I was using in Google were going to give me one sort of interpretation because I'm looking for the political controversy. Right. And the internet's going to feed it to you in one way. Exactly. It's going to deliver me information based off of what I inquire. It's much harder to find an answer to a question that isn't biased. And I know we try and stay neutral or at least present both sides to an argument. I know our biases do come through in this podcast, but this is just such, I think a ridiculous example of how really, really dangerous political ideas spread. Yeah. And it's what makes me so mad is now it's involving children. Yes. And to me, like there, there is just a really, really harsh line to which politics shouldn't cross. And it has here. And that's why I think this story is so interesting to me because we did Like you said, we had this scheduled out to be kind of an analysis of children's books that have hidden political agendas. That's genuinely what we were looking for. I'm glad we didn't find it because that would be really, really sad. And, you know, there there are people out there that are probably going to say, oh, but it's so obvious, you sheeple. Like, it's right there in front of you. I, I was also seeing opinions about this interpretation saying, the mouse in the story cleans up the house, makes a piece of art, and then it gets put on the refrigerator. Like, come on, like, let's actually look at the full picture instead of just the sentence structure of the story. And kids' books are also meant to use repetitive sentence structure. Like, Dr. Seuss is known for, like, one of his books, it was like, you can't write a book with less than 150 words, and he said, watch me. And, yes. Green eggs and ham. We could go... Uh, I love a good hop on pop. Anyway, Mm -hmm. (laughs) we could go on and on about like Dr. Seuss and Mm -hmm. his issues. There are lots of problems with media, books, music, movies that children are consuming. However, I do not think if you give a mouse a cookie is one of them. And actually from one of our sources that Brendan mentioned earlier, How a Classic Children's Book Got Hijacked by the Culture Wars, written by Rebecca Christie. I just want to read this very brief quote from it because I think it's very telling. If you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to ask you to shut up about the welfare state. 
<laughs> or at least that's what I imagine every time I read another reference to how a beloved children's classic is a not-so-secret warning about the perils of handouts. So if you give a mouse a cookie, doesn't have a hidden political agenda. I'm sorry for those of you that were looking for this incredible conspiracy. It's not there. And that's okay. In fact, that's probably a good thing. But what this does show us is a phenomena of adults latching onto children's content, interpreting it based off of their own pre-existing biases, and then disseminating that interpretation as fact. And what makes this case the one that debunks banning kids' books, in my opinion, is that this says that if you give a mouse a cookie is a anti-welfare state book, which is social programs and like government-based programs tends to be more of a left-leaning thing, big government, left-leaning. And so the fact that this book wasn't banned or didn't have some sort of like political activist group trying to undermine its success to me demonstrates that what is being banned today is entirely politically motivated and it's entirely politically motivated by one specific side. And so that's where we're really going to open up the discussion to Moms for Liberty, the worst PTA group in the entire country ever. So Moms for Liberty. <laughs> PTA groups are already bad, but yeah. yes, they can get worse. So I, I, I just, I'm going to give the rundown of Moms for Liberty. We're, we've talked about this a fair bit before this podcast, but for those of you that don't know what Moms for Liberty are, Moms for Liberty was founded in Florida and <laughs> it was founded on January 1st, 2021. And since then they have been creating a large political movement involving chapters all throughout the United States that is focusing on banning books that mention LGBTQIA plus rights, race, ethnicity, critical race theory, and discrimination. They're more or less the group that will say, oh, like, I don't care if you're gay, but just like, don't throw it in my face. Exactly. Or, I don't care if you're black, green, purple, They'll Blue. always manage to throw in ones that we shouldn't say on this podcast, too. Yeah, and I'm going to omit a few other colors, yeah. but, like, you know the type. You might even have one of them in your family or might have a friend. Hell, you might even be one. And we are here to tell you... To stop it. Yeah, If you that- are in that supporting group, please stop for so many reasons, but... But this group yeah. is is pretty messed up. And like you said, they are unfortunately largely responsible for the uptick in book banning, not only in Florida, but the other. Other states that are involved. Red leaning ish states. So I'm just going to give you like some key figures for this. This would be my my campaign trail to dismantle Moms for Liberty. During the 2022 to 2023 school year, 3,362 book ban instances were reported. That equates to 1,500 titles in one year that were targeted by this specific group. If you're wondering about how much this specific group has influenced this 
explicit movement of banning kids' books, we just need to look at the statistics. 40% of book bans occurred in Florida, right? Where this organization is headquartered. Additionally, 87% of all book bans occurred in districts with nearby censorship chapters. And what I mean by censorship chapters is these sort of political action groups will have chapters that span many regions. One of them is King County that has a Moms for Liberty chapter. I was going to say, and King County is located in Seattle where we film, and (laughs) there was a Seattle Times headline. I hope we can find it, but that basically said that they got laughed out of a room or like a certain school district and that they thought that they would come in and everyone would, you know, grace them with open arms. And that just wasn't the case. So I just, I think it's important to note that even in the most liberal or blue or even like purple States, these chapters are spreading. And that's why we unfortunately have to talk about it. We know what moms for Liberty are. Mm -hmm. We know what they're trying to do. They're trying to ban as many books that just mention like that probably even say the word race, gay, trans, or, feminism, or like anything that mentions white people doing a bad thing historically. Any because accountability. A huge part of it too is that they don't want their white kids to feel guilty for being white. I'm sorry, as if that could even be a thing. Like, grow up is what I say. They should feel guilty and they should feel bad. I remember going through this period in middle school and high school when you start to realize, oh shit, the world isn't as cool as I thought it was. Me being very, very pale, almost to the state of being albino, like... My people, where I come from, have played a role in all of this. If you're not acknowledging something, then you can't get over it. Absolutely. So that's ridiculous. That's, and if you're yes. trying to bring your child up in a peaceful and beautiful world, that's not going to happen if you don't acknowledge what other people who don't look like them have to go through. It is ridiculous. It's stupid. And I feel for all of the teachers out there, that know this and feel this and are actively just trying to get their class through another year. Cause it feels like after COVID with teaching, that's what teachers have been doing. And now there's an added layer of what they can teach. And I know curriculum has always been tough in different parts of the country, but I cannot imagine what being a teacher in this political climate is like And so I just want to send a message out there to all of the teachers. You're a rock star. And and that's really hard. And this is, this also has the weight of, I mean, your dad's a teacher too. So it's like, you know what that's like. And you've, you've been with your dad and he, you've talked about school and kids and like the, the kids that are impacted by stuff like this. Yeah. I mean, like just basic, basic backstory. My dad is, was an elementary school teacher for, the entirety of his career. And so education and access to like welfare programs and social programs that help children who don't have access to the ridiculous private school stuff is a big part of my family. That's just who I am. And so naturally I'm going to be a bit more motivated than some people out there who 
can't relate. And so if you feel the anger in my voice, it's there for a reason. This stuff really, really makes me mad. But I also know that as voters, hopefully everyone out there is registered to vote, we can help change this. It's going to, it's like going to take a lot of effort and a lot of time. But I think if there's enough resistance, this doesn't have to be the reality for much longer. Thank you all for listening to the the political address that we had about like, hey, please stop banning books. If you're a parent doing this, this is embarrassing for you, Moms for Liberty. So let's actually get into questions that I think might add a bit of a brighter tone to this podcast because book banning sucks. But I also want to really play with the idea of the power of a book. And really what I've been thinking about is when books are banned, you deal with what's called the paradox of exposure a little bit. It's now you're starting to identify these books that are morally unfit for society, quote unquote, but it also gives them a certain status or certificate of, yeah, this, this rustled enough feathers to warrant being banned. And if you look through some of the most famous books in American literature, at least that, that I know of, many of them have been banned at some point or another. It is not new that good books get banned. In fact, that's a pretty cool reading list is banned books. I was going to say there's a read, like if you go to your local bookstore or even your library, you will most likely find someone in there wearing a t-shirt or like an iPad case or something that says, I read banned books. Because I always <laughs> see that like when I go to local bookstores and it just makes me feel happy. Puts a smile on my face. It, it does. And so I, I have two questions for, for us for this debrief and discussion. The first is, have any children's books or young adult novels left a meaningful impact on your life and why? And then the second question, which we'll get to, is... What gives children's book the power to compel adults to politically organize? And how does this power change from pro or anti-censorship perspectives? So first one's like, let's find something that's meaningful to us. Second one is, what is the power behind these books? And how is that perception of power different depending on which side of book banning you're on? So let's start with the first one. What's a, what's a book that means a lot to you? This was a hard list to narrow down, but I'm just going to share one. My favorite children's book is Love You Forever, which is written by Robert Munch. And it's the the book that has the baby sitting next to the toilet. It's blue. I'm sure a lot of you have seen it. But my both of my parents read this book to me a lot growing up. And it, it's just the sweetest book. And my favorite part that's like, this is what is repeated throughout the book. It's, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. And this specifically stuck with me the most because it's the first book that taught me that my parents are going to age. Now, this is a very harsh and sad reality for a lot of kids, but it also made me appreciate more so in like my young adulthood the time that I have with them and so I've always held this book very close to my heart I've gifted it to new babies that have been born in our life and I think it's a book that a lot of people have read because it's very very popular 
There's no political agenda there, but that would be my answer. I, I think that that's, it shows that the children's books and children's stories, like as, as Guillermo del Toro always says, is it teaches about some pretty difficult concepts, but in a way that, that children can start to digest and start to grapple with and not feel totally afraid of the unknown. They have something to hold on to that feels more stable. Yeah. I mean, in the book, it starts off like the baby is born, the the parents are caring for it. The baby does all these silly things. And then the parents start to age and the child grows up and then the child starts to care for the parents. Like you said, that's a pretty tough reality for a lot of people, I think for everyone to face, not only aging, but the idea that your parents aren't going to be with you forever. And that book, I think, does a really great job of addressing that in a very sweet way. And we talked about earlier with Mouse Cookie, the repetition in children's books. Specifically, if you give a mouse cookie, has it pretty much the entire time. This book has it too. So yeah. let me just cite that one into evidence. It's, it is how children's books work. So what's yours? So I'm going to break the rule. I'm going to go with two. One, I, I need to just cite going on a bear hunt. Classic. I asked for that book to be read to me so many times. And for those of you who haven't had the honor of listening or reading the book yourself, it just generally follows, we're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. We're not scared. And then they'll encounter some sort of obstacle and it's like, I can't go over it. Can't go Go under under it. it. So you got to go go through it. it. And they go on this big old adventure. They get all the way to the bear and then the bear roars at them and then they just sprint back home because they're, they're scared. And, but it's kind of thrilling the whole time because they, they get back really fast because bears, I, I just like bears. I think that that's the real reason why I love that book so much. I asked for it to be read so many times, just bears. And that's how a kid's brain kind of works. I think at times. The second book that I'm going to mention that had a big impact on me was Percy Jackson, the first book, The Lightning Thief. I'm just calling the first book on that one because I read so many pages of that whole franchise and everything that Rick Riordan wrote. I It was probably the first author that I became really obsessed with and I noticed that I would read in huge volumes in a way that I didn't usually. And and I had a hard time reading while growing up, but with those books, I just, I latched into them so quickly and I felt very comfortable reading through all of them. I don't know what that says, but it was, it was the first, it was the types of books that gave me the, uh, it let me know that I, I do love stories and I do love reading, even though it was often really difficult for me. Those stories gave me hope big picture. And, you know, thankfully now that I am on medication for ADHD and all that, I can read more and I enjoy reading a lot. And I think a lot of that, you know, it it takes good books when you're younger to get you inspired to read more. So that's why that book means a lot to me. 
But what's interesting is I don't think either of us talked about the radical political agendas that were embedded in the books that we were reading when we were younger. No, never. It never comes to mind. Never crossed my mind. I was trying to think actually of any book I encountered as a child that might have a political agenda that's like not Animal Farm. Yeah. And I don't even think I can think of one because all of the books or even the poems or the short stories that could even come close were more so just describing nuance and like difficult ideas for children that I hadn't had in my life. That's what reading is. That's why children are encouraged to read, right? It's like to open your mind. Because the other book I thought about was House on Mango Street, which is like the little vignettes and short stories. I love that book or vignettes. And I remember, I think it was seventh grade when we read it Mm -hmm. in class. And, you know, the kids around me were like, oh my God, like why are we reading? This is so dumb. I loved it. Yeah. And to me, it's like, okay, maybe that one's coming a little bit closer, but like not really. It's just like showing what another child of a different race in a different socioeconomic class than I was, what her life was like. And so that's not political at all. I feel like it is very easy to dismantle and disprove what Moms for Liberty is fighting for because at the end of the day, they're just fighting to keep white America alive in literature. And it's like, we have enough of that, you know? There are plenty of other other (laughs) novels and short stories that children should be reading that aren't going to threaten classics, that aren't trying to erase any of that, but are trying to live next to them, have a place on the shelf. You know, and when you take them off, what are you doing? You're literally wiping it from history because it's not going to be heard or read or listened to by the next generation. Yeah. And that is the ultimate goal is to eliminate it to, I mean, it's, it's information suppression is the, the information science term. And, and this also part of what piques my interest in this story at large is, you know, I am a, an informatics graduate from the university of Washington and informatics is the school that hosts library sciences. So yes, my entire department, the entire program was built from library sciences. Now it's expanded into more, you know, information technology spaces now, but that's its root is, is the libraries. It's the keeping of information and the organization of information. And so, yeah, seeing all this, it, it's a bummer. So let's work through our second question here, which is what gives children's books the power to compel adults to politically organize? And how does this power change from pro or anti-censorship perspectives? So let's just talk about what is the power of these books? Why are people so scared of them? Yeah, I have a few perspectives, I think. I think the first one is it's really easy to hide behind children and say, I'm doing X to protect children, to protect the future of America. Because in a lot of cases, when people say that, that sounds like a good thing, right? Like I'm promoting 
vegetarianism for the good of the future of America. Great. Sign me up. It's a buzzword that adults who have a lot of ridiculous opinions can easily hide behind and disguise themselves as people who just really care. The other side of it is I think, unfortunately, a lot of people who think this way aren't as educated or as traveled or as socially compatible as people who don't think that way. I don't want to say because you didn't go to college, you don't know what you're talking about because I don't agree with that. There's a lot of things that factor into intelligence and that comes into where you live, who you interact with, the ideas and the media you consume, sometimes the level of your education, how well read are you? All of these things comprise an educated person and unfortunately we see this with the way these people vote too the intelligence isn't always there and so it's very easy to latch on to media or books that pretty much everyone in America has read and so when you take this book that we've all read if you give a mouse a cookie and you weaponize it you can get a lot of people behind you because a lot of people have read that book Now, if you were to do it with another random book, I don't know, XYZ, maybe not as many people would follow you. And so these people start in these small groups attacking large ideas and large titles and then are moving to ban more and more titles. Like you said, it's 1,500. In the past year. In the past year. No one's read that many books in one year. There's no way. And I can guarantee you that the Moms for Liberty have never read 1,500 books. I bet half of them haven't even read 100 books. And I know that's rude to say, and I definitely have no, no math to back that up. But there are trends that explain why certain people on certain sides of politics act the way they do. Yeah. That's what I have to say about that. It's a it's a culture of fear that I think gets a big, big amplification through social media right now. We know that we are addicted to outrage. That's why we're pretty outraged right now, right? It it resonates with people. People want to communicate with one another about things that are wrong so they can find a solution. It just makes sense that it would be a powerful emotion for a lot of people. Unfortunately, it's just such a misguided attempt at protecting kids. In fact, it does the exact opposite. I Yeah, the children are the victim here. And not only that, but like let's be honest too. I so I I've seen interviews with kids that are impacted by these book bans. And The kids are, (laughs) you're not winning the kids over by doing this. And also, like, the the other disgusting bit to me is that literacy has already kind of been taking hits as different forms of media rise. Forms of media that are far more suited for the way our brains grab to things and focus on things. 
And so while we're trying to figure out a way to grapple with the addictiveness of social media and the addictiveness of online videos or, you know, those sorts of things, you're also banning books, which is like one of the oldest forms of information storage that we have is writing things down or do making illustrations like that is, it is quintessential just being a human being is writing books, telling stories. And it's okay if those stories conflict with your own personal opinions or your perspectives of the world. That's what they're meant to do. Like no one goes out to write a book to say, I want someone to read this book and be changed 0% and to have their worldview altered not at all in the slightest. People write books for all sorts of reasons. It's, you know, it's funny to see a mouse eating a cookie. Could you imagine that? Someone supplying a mouse with the, the tools for not only arts and crafts, but for cookie and milk. Like, that's cute. It's adorable. I, my brain just turned into a pretzel. I think we should also address the literacy rates and the literacy issues post-COVID. Yeah, yeah. If if you don't know a teacher in your life or, again, not really involved with kids, you can find a lot of teachers online or like on TikTok or any social media talk about how difficult it is just to get children to read at all. And I'm pretty sure, please let me know if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that millennials are the, like have the highest rate of illiteracy like ever. And then in reverse, Gen Z is the most educated generation ever and also the highest like goer or attendee of public libraries. And so I like growing up, it was always, oh, get off your damn phone. And it's like just not true because Gen Z is actually incredibly literate. However, Gen Z is not raising generation alpha, which are children now. Millennials are raising them. And so I think there's a, a really unfortunate trend here where a generation that are now parents that didn't value literacy and reading in the same way that generations before them did are now parenting and leading movements that entice children not to read because that's what banning books does plain and simple if you're going to tell a kid hey you shouldn't read this book because it's too scary it's too dangerous this is too difficult or for it's you too gay or or it'll make you gay <laughs> you're telling a kid hey yeah. you shouldn't read you should be mm-hmm. scared of this. Books are scary and Books you should are scary. beware. Go play with your iPad. And again, I know these are iPad's like... iPad's so much scarier. Are these you kidding are, me? These are absolutes. And I know I'm making kind of grand statements here. I realize that. But I think there's something to that in that trend with literacy. And that's really troubling for me because <laughs> I used like in middle school and high school, I was like, yeah, I don't read. But secretly, I'm like reading every single day in my room. And then my parents told me, hey, you probably shouldn't say that you don't read. Like it makes you seem really dumb. (laughs) And now when I hear people say that, I get kind of like secondhand embarrassment. Mm -hmm. Like I just want to preach this from the rooftop. It's not cool when you say, oh, I don't read or, oh, this book should be banned. It's actually really embarrassing for you. And for moms of for liberty. 
and Realms of Liberty. And I also want to say that like reading doesn't have to be you physically cracking open a book. It can be reading articles online, reading infographics on social media. That is literacy and that is a form of reading. Thank you. Yeah, you're you're welcome. I I I also want to add too that uh, I am spacing on his name. The guy that does reading rail rainbow. I mean, oh, I don't know his name. LeVar Burton introduces young viewers to illustrated readings of children's literature and explores their related subjects. Yes, it's just in case you haven't seen Reading Rainbow, that's what he does. Yep, Reading Rainbow. Fantastic. LeVar Burton, an absolute icon. He was recently interviewed, and by recently, I mean like within the past couple of years, interviewed on NPR about, it was, I believe, like an app or some sort of literacy promoting iPad related thing where the general principle that he was trying to preach is like, hey, we're in a an era where kids' attention's being drawn to all these things, all of these videos on YouTube, all of these endless posts on social media. How do we get kids to read again? And really emphasizing the point that reading isn't always reading a novel. Yes. Thank you. I'm Pure so glad that you just, someone said that. Like look through words you're reading. Like that's all it takes. And it's, we are like, there are some things that we need to be really clear about reading through online forums. If you're still reading, that's okay. And that's if synt- reading. Yeah. And syntax can change all the time. We are in an era where it's like our language is evolving faster than it's ever evolved because of how much people are conversing. So just as long as your eyes are glancing over text and you are consuming information and understanding and comprehending, you are reading and that's okay. I have had a really difficult time going cover to cover for a lot of longer books. Yeah, not everyone likes novels. And and not everyone likes novels, And that's okay. And honestly, I think it, you know, we had different education growing up, but yeah. I think that's something that public school actually does really well. And maybe I just had like really phenomenal English teachers because I did. (laughs) But we read all sorts of things. It was short stories, vignettes, poetry, long, long novels, plays. And that showed me that like, hey, it's okay to not read a thousand page book. You don't have to. Because I never really liked that until I got into Outlander because I love Outlander. But Normally, I don't like that. I like shorter things because, I don't know, I like to be able to read something in one sitting. And yeah. that was I, that was just something I didn't know you could do. And I also didn't know that that could count as reading until I grew up, you know? Yeah. And so I think yeah. the moment you take that beauty away, beauty meaning like a child discovering some sort of reading that they actually like. It could even be graphic novels. Like it doesn't matter what it is. When you take a child's ability to connect with whatever form of language or books, whatever, you're taking away their literacy and their future. Moms for Liberty is a social club for people that are scared of children's books. Moms for Liberty is a social club for people scared of children. Moms for Liberty is a networking opportunity for people that think that 
throwing an iPad in front of a 10-year-old's face is the equivalent to raising a child. Moms for Liberties are not registered voters. But they are registered for other things. Fill in the blank. Oh, that was a good one. It, because, it, you know, it's funny because we take the the narrative that that books are porn in schools, which is a real thing that I'm seeing on these headlines is like their argument is that if anything mentions sexuality, it is porn. What I'm going to say is like your kids are already watching porn. Yes. Like the least of your concerns is that they're reading. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, like I'm genuinely scared that none of them have read a book like face to face. I, you know, I don't I, think it's happened. I would love to see and like what their shit, favorite like, book picks are. Like, no, that's do, what I'm do they have a book pick section? Oh my God. Do you think they have a book club? You know how Obama releases like <laughs> his favorite books of the year yeah, yeah. and it's like highly anticipated. Yes. Do you think they have one of those? Should we wrap up this episode? We should absolutely. Oh, we haven't done our, what we learned. Oh yeah. Let's talk about yeah, what yeah. we learned. No, I was just going to say when you talked about this is only happening in a few areas those are already or i guess what i learned is like those are already the areas in the united states that need the most attention and need the most help especially social and welfare programs for children and so if you happen to live anywhere near the state of florida or really any southern state in general I hope that you can find a way to get involved with your community and whatever that means to you because these kids are already at such a disadvantage politically that they shouldn't have to be at a disadvantage at school. I learned that not only is book banning just stupid, I hate to throw the stupid tag on it, but no, certified stupid. The S word. The S word. But I think what what I am hopeful of is that we really lean into... If they're banning it, it's for the reason. Hold on. If they're banning it, it's because it has something profound within it. Just just think about that as a general principle. If people want to censor a certain message or suppress a certain message, instead of meeting that message with more information or a different perspective there's a good chance that they're they're shaking in their boots, that they're scared. Yeah, you should probably ask why. And you should probably ask why. And so stay curious, kiddos. Find the funny band book list, as you were saying, and have at it. Scare some adults in your life with reading because that's a thing we can do now. Generation Alpha, if you, if you want to embrace the A for anarchy, just start reading band books in front of adults in Florida. And just see what happens. Or literally just start reading. Or start reading. They, like, they'll be terrified. Yeah. You can start small and build up later. <laughs> but that general sentiment of like, just whatever's happening there, just know that there are some adults that in this country that think it's ridiculous. And we're sorry that you have to grow up in this situation. Maybe one day, many years from now, you'll hear this podcast and say, well, there were a few adults that were fighting the good fight. and. Hopefully, hopefully the side of uh, just reading things and enjoying stories wins. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. You can check us out on Instagram and TikTok. Instagram is at Rough Draft Seattle. TikTok is at Rough Draft Media. Rough Draft Media is the company that owns all of this stuff. 
Can I Tell You Something is our show. This is myself, Brendan, and you. I am Claire. You are Claire. And we are so thankful for your ears and attention to this podcast. And we will see you in a couple weeks. Bye. Bye. Bye.